Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome. This program is produced weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Check us out, christ-life.org. This is our podcast number 163, and we appreciate you tuning us in. Thank you so very much. Today, our series continues with Warren Litzman's study on Jesus and Paul. Fantastic study. Here's part number nine. Here's Warren. Most of us have never in our life concentrated on the seed that is in us. We didn't concentrate on the development of Christ in the ground he was planted. The ground, your life. That's where he's planted. The seed is in your life. You are the earthen vessel, a clay pot. That's where the seed is. Now what you do with that seed has to do with your love affair. See? So God is the one that has the power to prompt that love affair. The CNS gang is not God's uh, KGB force or Nazi troop force, Nazis, Nazis, not the devil force. The CNS gang is God's love force pushing you to an act of love through your circumstances. What does that do? That develops the seed. Brings the seed out. So the outer things attack the seed to prompt the seed to life and growth. The seed is the Son. The seed is Christ. The seed is the Word, Jesus. The incorruptible seed, Peter says, is the Word. I always wondered about that because he didn't say the seed was the Savior. He said the seed was the Word. That's the high calling of Jesus that rules over this world. In the end, in the tribulation period, when Jesus arrives on this earth, he comes as the Word of God. He has written across his front, his vesture, the Word of God. So Peter said that the incorruptible seed is the person of Christ in the manifestation of the Word. So the outer things that happen to you are God things. You say, well, doesn't the devil do this? Yep, the Lord uses the devil a lot of times but he's but a switch in the Father's hand. He is never out of the Father's control. You think he is because you don't know who you are in Christ. So our whole purpose is to teach you that the Holy Spirit will enlighten you and God will establish you by the things that happen to you. Now him, to him that has the power to establish you. Establish you. Oh, how important it is to be established. 
I don't know that people are really hungry themselves to know about all this. I question it a lot of times. For instance, I question if the Apostle Paul came to us that hardly anybody would listen to him. I don't know if anybody's interested in growing up in Jesus. We have an idea that Jesus grows in us. He doesn't. We grow up in him. He doesn't come to full stature. We do. The seed is perfect. Christ in you is perfect. The seed has everything that's intended for your life. The purposes of life is to allow it to grow. And so all of life is is compression on that seed to cause it to grow and to come out of you. He's in the process of establishing you. He wants us to be strong. I don't know when Jesus is coming. I'll look for him tonight. Not tonight. Tomorrow night. He's coming. I believe he's coming soon. Don't know when. But I know this. In the meantime, God wants a message to be given to his children that will establish them. Establish us for what? So we can build greater churches, reach more of the world? No. So we can come to the fruition of who we are in Christ as a family member. So we can learn what it means to be a child of God. You say, oh, what good would that do? I need help right now. No. You need a gospel right now that prepares you to live in the Father's house. We teach in the Christ life that the world is a schoolhouse. Your circumstances and situations are your tutors and governors. Your classrooms are the trials you go through. So you're all in school. Why? We are not ready to live in the Father's house. Now, I have no answer for that because I see a lot of people pass on to the Father's house that I wonder if they're ready for anything. But it's not up to me to judge people. I don't judge people anymore. But I know this, as long as you're here, you're being housebroken. Because your objective is to live in the Father's house. That's what the establishment is all about. Well, these are words I'm giving you now that are from me. But the rest of that line says, Now to him that is of the power to establish you according to my gospel. That takes us into the gospel that does this establishment, that does establish, that does make us what God intended that we be. Into the gospel. Establish us according to my gospel. Now, I've told you before this week that the word according usually refers to the eternal plan of God. Like, we denoted in Ephesians 1, I think it's five or six times that the word according is used, and each time it goes back to the original plan of God. It is interesting to note that Ephesians is the first that Paul wrote after the gospel ceased to go to Israel, and it was here that he lifted us back into the eternal plan of God, and the word according usually pushes us back to that place where God had an original attention for people he wanted to live in his house. He never planned for Israel to live in his house. 
but he did plan for those he birthed to come on home and live in his house. And so the word according points us to the eternal plan of God, not just the temporary plan, not just the earthly plan, certainly not to the kingdom message, but to the eternal plan of God. And so his purpose is to establish us according to his eternal plan. Who in this book has the eternal plan of God in focus? Only one in this book that does is the Apostle Paul. He is the only one that reverts back before the beginning. All the rest go back to Adam. Paul goes back to God in the beginning. Before the beginning, in fact. Before time starts. So when I refer to the eternal plan of God, that's what's in focus. Not just a plan for this earth, but the eternal plan of God that brings us back to the Father's house as rebirth children. Creatures unrebirthed fit on this earth and will stay here. It is the born again, those that are in Christ and Christ in them that go back to the Father's house. So the word according becomes an important word. It directs our minds right to the eternal plan of God as contrasted with the temporal plan of God. Now you understand, don't you, that much of our life has been centered in a temporal plan of God. We are saved, we go to churches, and we look for somebody that will do us good. We're really interested in this temporal plan whereby I can get happy, I can get satisfied, uh, uh, our message is become a Christian and you'll be happy. <laughs> I always find somebody in a group that stands up sooner or later and says, well, I don't know about the rest of you, but ever since I've been saved, I've had hell on earth. <laughs> I hear it constantly. That's a truism. If you just contrasted your life with God's development of you, with what you had before, you were your own self doing as you pleased, you might see a difference. You didn't come to God. Most people didn't come to God because their sin wasn't fun. Of course, those that are in drugs and alcohol, there's not much fun there, but they, they seem to think so, don't they? You didn't come to God because there wasn't sin in there. You came to God because under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you realized you couldn't continue without a Savior. Your life was going down. So you'd like to be a Christian and do all the things you did under Satan's domain. But that isn't possible. All of a sudden, when you came to Jesus, your life began to be charged by love that said, this has to be done. If I love him, this has to be done. A parent gets saved and looks at the husband. A wife gets saved, let's say, and looks at the husband and says, my life has changed. I belong to Jesus. I'm a Christian, whatever. The witness begins to develop problems, does it not? Parents come to God. We've had this to happen because we reach a great percentage of people who have been saved a long time and finally gave up on religion. And this message come along and made a great difference in their life. And when they started seeing Christ as their life, you can imagine the problems they had with their children. That wasn't easy. 
I've had a lot of preachers that had that problem. Once they came into the Christ life, they had a big problem with people who didn't follow them as they did before. In fact, the preacher called me the other day, and he said, Litchman, I wish I'd never heard of you. <laughs> He's right. Who said it was going to all be easy? See, that's a different gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel that comes for the man that Jesus said, I'm calling you to suffer for me. It wasn't easy. Who said it was going to be easy? Adoption. Let's talk about the word adoption for a moment. I love that word. Most uh, people, I think, are confused between being born again and being adopted. How can you be both? It's simple. There's a part of you that's born again is your spirit, and it's your soul and body that's adopted. Why? That's the part of you that belongs to somebody else. That's the part of you that isn't claimed at the cross. So adoption is bringing soul and body under subjection to this new life. Adopted. That's why Paul talks about adoption being a, a difficult thing to come to. Because now you're bringing a part of you under subjection to the Christ that is in you that doesn't fit. I mean, it's been living another way. It's had another master. It's had another ruler. It's had another God. And all of a sudden, you're changing gods on it. That hurts. Why doesn't God make it easy? It's because adoption comes from a God who paid the most supreme price He could pay to get you as his child. His price was not in silver and gold. Know ye not that we are not redeemed by carnal things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. How do you think you could live in a family like that and have no feeling for it? Think you could? Think you could come into the family of God and shout and holler all the way and, and say, my dad owns it all. Bless God, give it to me. Nope. I'll tell you what most of us are. Most of us are the younger son in Luke 15. We think our father owns it all and bless God, we're going to get our part of it. I'm a king's kid. Give me what's coming to me. But thank God for hog pens. You see, there's always one ahead if you're not open and willing. What makes you think you can be in this family without any feeling, any compunction of what goes on in this family? What makes you think you can be a Christian and a child of this father and not take on some of his nature? Peter said we're partakers of his nature. What's in the nature of God? Have you ever seen from this book what's in the nature of God? Religion doesn't believe what's in this book. 
Religion has created its own God. God is good. God is holy. God is rich. God is wonderful. God is all-powerful. God is the creator. Book says this, we took what we lacked of it and created our own God. But God suffers hurt. God hurt. I'm certain he hurt when Lucifer came against him, when Adam fell, when he watched 4,300 years of his servants who had a problem with their love affair with him, with Israel, who never fell in love with him. And then he took that most priceless possession and he killed it. Folks don't like to hear me say that. But that's the truth. Because if anybody could have stopped that death, that father could have. If anybody could have hindered Calvary, God could have. But he turned his back and offered his son. That's in him. That'll always be in him. I've long suspicioned that heaven still is in bewilderment over that day that God turned his back on his son. I think the angels are bewildered. Seraphims, cherubims, whatever these creatures are, I think they watched that day in utter dismay that God would do that to his son. And he let him die crying and weeping, help me, help me. And the God who always listened to creatures in trouble turned on his own son. So stripped it was that the son cried, why have you forsaken me? That hurt, that's pain, that's deep. That's in God. When he put his seed in you, that seed is genetically attached to his nature. If you think we can live and die and never have a compunction of feeling for this family, you've been deceived. So when he adopted my soul of spirit along with my birth, my, my soul and body along with my birth spirit, I'm going to learn a little bit about suffering. And when he called this preacher to preach that message, he didn't say, I've called you to go and deliver the multitude. He said, I've called you to suffer. Are you getting the picture? There's a different gospel. The gospel of grace is different from the kingdom. So when the scripture says that he's going to establish us according to my gospel, we're talking about him who has adopted us into his family. The adoption was critical on his part because he completely saved us by spirit. Christ joined our spirit, made one spirit, but that soul and body of ours really should have gone to hell. 
But Jesus says, I'll live in that soul and body that's unredeemed because I want them to grow up in me. I want the love to be manifested. That's where you can't separate the suffering, the hurt. You say, well, it sounds like Christian life is an awful thing. No, life is. Christianity has a means to it. I don't suffer and hurt in my life for nothing because I know now every bit of it is the Holy Spirit pushing me to this Jesus who lives in me. I go visit one of our saints in trouble and I know my message to them has got to be clear. God is working. He's pushing you to this Jesus that's in you. I tell every person that's suffering, and we have many in our fellowship. We have many. <laughs> we have hundreds of people in this fellowship. And uh, in a way, I've become pastor to all of them while each of our groups have somebody over them, more or less. But I've always told them, if you're in trouble, Robbie or I'll be there. And we've done that. We've gone all the way across America for one person that was sick in the hospital. And we bury them. I not only marry them, I bury them. We do everything we can to serve them, but the minute I get to them, they know what my message is going to be because I'm going to look them right in the eye and say, he that is in you is greater than this thing against you. That's my first message. I told a little woman out in California, the, the pastor there said, uh, she's a dear saint, but said she's lost her bearings. She don't want to go home. She don't want to leave her grandchildren. And she said, there's, he said, there's no hope for her in the world. And said, she heard you were coming. Would you please go pray for her in the hospital? I said, sure. She was expecting me to pray a prayer of faith like most healers would do. The minute I went into the hospital room, tears came to her eyes. She said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, I said, let's not miss the point. You're looking for healing. And I said, the healing and the healer has been inside of you ever since you've been in this hospital. Because he lives in you. And I said, let's not separate your healing from the healer. Her tears became profused. And finally she looked up at me and she said, I needed that. She said, I kept waiting for him to come through the door. And she said, I had forgotten. He lives in me. Well, our time is out for today, but as always, we'll pick up right here where we left off next week as Warren Litzman continues his study on Jesus and Paul. Please visit our website, if you will, read all about the Christ life that we so much enjoy, christ-life.org. And when you're there, Go to the bookstore and get some of Warren's wonderful material for your own home. Our thanks to Robbie Litzman, who allows us to go into the archives each week to bring you these great broadcasts. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And this program is produced weekly by Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life.